0: There are some stories in Jewish history that are so bizarre, so fascinating, so completely wild that they feel straight out of a movie. Join hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab for Season 3 of Jewish History Nerds, a new season of intrigue, mystical realms, and bloody battles. Jewish History Nerds will keep you on the edge of your seat as you learn all about some of the craziest and most amazing, yet largely unknown stories that fill Jewish history books. Jewish History Nerds Season 3, hosted by Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab. Available wherever you listen
1: Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online, or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hello and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show for those interested in the big and small moments of history. I'm Gabe Lussier, and today we're talking about the history of US copyright law, including why the founders considered it so vital to the nation's growth that they enacted it even before the right to free speech. The day was May 31st, 1790. The first U.S. federal copyright law was signed into effect by President George Washington. Known as the Copyright Act of 1790, it granted American authors the exclusive right to copy, that is, to publish and reprint, their original works for a period of 14 years. It also gave them the option to renew for another 14 years, provided the author was still alive. The statute was only half a page in length, but the legal framework it established for the creation of original works has lasted, with some adjustments, for more than 230 years and counting. The Act of 1790 was the first copyright law enacted under the new U.S. Constitution, but the issue of copyright law had been on Americans' minds for a long time before then. England had never bothered to institute copyright protections for its colonies, believing that the largely agrarian colonists would never need to print anything besides government materials. As you might expect, many colonists were insulted by that narrow view of their creative potential, a grievance they did not forget after taking up arms during the American Revolution. When the war ended, most of the newly formed states quickly passed their own copyright laws. The intent was the same in every case, but the scope of rights protected and the means of securing them differed widely from state to state. The framers of the U.S. Constitution knew the country would eventually need a more streamlined solution. So to cover their bases, they included Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 of the Constitution. It says, quote, The Congress shall have power to promote the progress of science and useful arts, By securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. A few years later, the first federal Congress put that provision to use by passing both the Patent Act and the Copyright Act of 1790. President Washington happily signed them both into law, having called for such legislation himself during his first State of the Union address earlier that year. That timeline gives you a sense of the importance lawmakers placed on the need for federal copyright law. The issue was considered so crucial that Congress tackled it during its second session, and the President signed it into law during his first year in office, before the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights were even ratified. Congress's goal was to create a single federal standard for copyright protections, one that would supersede the many state level statutes. That were often at odds with one another. Congress modeled its Copyright Act on Britain's Statute of Anne, a law from 1710 which had been enacted to address the concerns of booksellers and publishers. The pioneering law outlined the basic principles of authors' ownership of copyright and a fixed term of protection for copyrighted works. The U.S. Congress deviated very little from the Statute of Anne. Adapting both its 14 year terms and its limited scope, applying only to books, charts, and maps. In order to secure a copyright for one of those three works, the author had to provide a copy to the clerk of their local district court and send another copy to the U.S. Secretary of State within six months of the work's publication. Once a copyright was granted, Anyone caught violating it was subject to a fine of 50 cents per printed page found in their possession. The first copyright under the law was granted on June 9, 1790, just 10 days after the law's enactment. It was awarded to John Barry's Philadelphia Spelling Book, which the author registered in the U.S. District Court of Pennsylvania. It was fitting that a spelling book should earn the first U.S. copyright as teacher and education reformer Noah Webster had long lobbied for copyright protection for his own spelling book, The Famous Blue-Backed Speller. The wording of the 1790 Copyright Act reveals a lot about the intentions behind it. For instance, it's referred to as, quote, an act for the encouragement of learning. That description reflects the basic premise of copyright protection, that it provides an incentive for people to create new works. After all, why go to the trouble of writing a book or charting a river if anyone can just take and copy your work once it's made public? Copyrights effectively grant a monopoly to the creator of an original work, giving them full control over how their work is used, including whether or not it's sold to a publisher. The flip side to that power, however, is that it's only a limited-time monopoly. Because, at the end of a given period, the copyright expires, and from then on, the work belongs to everyone. In that light, a copyright is basically a contract between authors, artists, and scientists, and the rest of society. They continue making cool new stuff, and in return, we promise not to steal that stuff or mess with it for a certain amount of time. The idea of placing a time limit on those protections is also present in the Copyright Act of 1790. At first, a copyright term was set at 14 years, with the option to renew for another 14 years, or 28 years total. However, those rules were amended over time, and by 1909, the terms had doubled to 28 years apiece, or 56 years total. The trouble is, there's always someone arguing that the length of copyrights is too short to make a profit. And back in the days of 14- and 28-year terms, Creators may have had a point. Unfortunately, terms continue to be extended throughout the 20th century, often at the behest of corporations looking to safeguard their valuable intellectual property. As a result, copyright protection in the U.S. now extends for up to 95 years, or 70 years, beyond the death of the work's creator. With excessive terms like that, Creative works are kept out of the public domain for far longer than they used to be, making the contract we started with seem increasingly one-sided. On a more positive note, the list of items protected by copyright has been greatly expanded as well. No longer limited to books, maps, and charts, Copyrights can now be secured for everything from music to software, architecture, illustrations, photography, movies, TV, video games, websites, you name it. Increasing the scope of what can be covered by copyright helps promote innovation and progress across a variety of fields, hearkening back to the original purpose of the Copyright Act of 1790. I'm Gabe Lucier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC show. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays and Ben Hackett for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.